Hey guys, welcome to the View from the Front podcast. You know what? You probably should insert some really hip, really cool music here because we don't have any really hip, really cool music on this podcast. But what we do have is news you're not going to easily find anywhere else. I promise you. My name is Stan R. Mitchell, and I'm a prior Marine and a guy who spent more than 10 years in the news business. And as a guy who's been deployed overseas, and as a guy who worries a lot about our current media situation, as well as the state of our country, I decided I could no longer remain silent while our country forgets the sacrifices of our military, while our media fans the flames of fear, and while our country grows further and further apart. I care a lot about our military, where they're at, where they might be going, what conflicts might be on the horizon. And I also know that we need to have a calm and solid media voice who doesn't work to divide and who doesn't use scare tactics or extreme, minute examples to work up their audience. Finally, I know we must unite this country because a house divided cannot stand. So if you're tired of domestic news that just upsets you every time you watch it, maybe it's time we look at the bigger picture, which might just affect both our country and our military. There are several reasons I focus on foreign policy each week. First, it's because I've been on the sharp end of the spear. I've been the young, deployed Marine who's sleeping in the mud and half scared out of his mind. I know that decisions made in Washington, D.C. lead to good men and women dying or being damaged for life. I also believe in the mission of this, of trying to highlight what our military troops are doing around the world while also trying to better educate Americans about looming hotspots. We want to avoid those places we should avoid. We also want to avoid unplanned mission creep, such as we did in Afghanistan or in Vietnam. These decisions mattered when they were made, and the decisions being made now matter as well. Foreign policy decisions can be tragic and heartbreaking, and it's important that we get them right. When we get them wrong, such as we did during the Vietnam War, our very country can be ripped apart by division and chaos. It's also crucial that when we get them wrong, as we did in Vietnam, then the faster we can course correct, the faster we can reduce how many lives we lose. America is the world's leading power, and we mostly lead the world from a position of moral authority, showing other countries how they should behave in regard to ethics, restraint, and providing freedom for their citizens. We are a force of good for the world, although I will acknowledge that we are not perfect. I don't claim to have all the answers, but I know that our democracy doesn't work without informed voters. And I also know we need to grow closer together and show more patience and kindness to each other. It's only by pulling our country closer together that we can pass on a better future for our kids. I feel strongly that we need to hold and cherish the beliefs that got us here today. Beliefs such as patience, kindness, and a strong belief that our best days lie before us. These are the beliefs that got us to this point. And they're also the kind of optimistic beliefs that will get us to a brighter future. Most Americans are good, and we need to remember this, always. And with that out of the way, let's get started. Oh, and if you want to, you can insert some more really hip, really cool music in your head. Because apparently, that's the only way you can have a successful podcast these days. 
This is the January 5th edition of The View from the Front, and we're really glad to have you here. In this episode, we'll be discussing several topics that I think will really interest you and that I can almost guarantee you haven't seen in the news. This includes uh, Ukraine's going to be getting a new weapon system from the United States as our country plans to send over Bradley fighting vehicles, which they'll be used to help drive out the Russians. That's the top line news. You might have seen that in the news. You also might not have because Congress has been crazy lately. But we'll spend a few minutes going into the details of the Bradley, what it can do, and what makes it such a potential game changer for Ukraine. We'll also talk about hundreds of Russians died in what is probably one of the most successful deep strikes of Ukraine to date. We'll cover how that happened, why that happened, and even how the Russians were warned about it and ignored those warnings. We're going to share the latest message that Russia is putting out as it tries to spin the facts on the war and then remind people what the truth is. We're going to talk briefly about Radio Free Europe and the role it plays around the world, but especially for 11 million Russians who are tuning in and getting the truth about the war. We'll also we'll wrap up our coverage of Ukraine by visiting the Kherson torture rooms that were recently discovered and what the Russians were doing to Ukrainians in that city before it was liberated. From there, we'll move to the friction between China and Taiwan and explain a generous offer that has been made by Taiwan as China deals with the growing death toll from COVID, which we warned about several weeks ago. We'll end the news section by discussing the long-shot project to develop an air-launched, unmanned aerial vehicle that can employ multiple air-to-air weapons and how I think this could revolutionize warfare in the air. Finally, we'll cover plenty of motivation and wisdom, as always. Before we get to the news, I want to share just three quick things, just sort of personal updates real fast. First of all, I had mentioned a couple of months ago, I think was the first one, uh, some news about my mother getting uh, stage 4 liver cancer. And I wanted to just share just a quick update on that uh, and not dwell on it. But uh, she shared the message and wanted me to share that... Um, I'll just read what she said. Uh, Dearest friends and family, after much thought and prayer, we have decided that we are not going to move forward with any additional chemo treatments. The first treatment was a smaller dose, but still had side effects that made my quality of life not what we want. We appreciate your continued prayers as I walk through this cancer journey, living every day to the absolute fullest. We are so blessed and going to continue to share the love of our Lord and Savior with everyone that we meet as we go through it love Kathy. So wanted to share that if you're the praying kind, would definitely appreciate continued prayers in that direction. Um, so I don't want to dwell on that too much. That's obviously uh, challenging and sad news. Uh, the other thing I wanted to share, much brighter topic, is Jacob, my stepson, turned 14, which I guess is probably the biggest news in the world at this time. Uh, he turned 14 on, uh, actually, I doubt my doubt it wise to share the date, but just a few days ago, we'll say. Um, so he turned 14, but he's kind of at that age, which is just awesome. Um, like we're lifting weights together. So there's that, you know, he's not the really young boy anymore, but he's also a teenager now. So there are times where it's like, uh, Stan, I don't want anything to do with you. I want to be on my phone or, uh, be with my friends online playing some video game, but 
he's big into uh, baseball. I think I've mentioned that before. Huge into travel ball and um, even played rec ball and travel ball last year. So his goal is to make it to the MLB. And so uh, anyway, we do all we can to motivate and encourage him and try to keep up with him as we spend many, 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 many weekends at the baseball field. Which oddly, with it being winter, I've kind of missed. But normally, just about every weekend and many nights through the week, we're either at practice, but definitely on the weekends, we are at the ball field. Um, but Jacob was 14, so if there wasn't glaring, blaring headlines on the New York Times about that, I'm not sure what they're doing up there. They need to pick up the game. Now, final thing I wanted to talk about was uh, I'm almost done with the edits of Nick Woods 5, which I have a working title on. I'm not quite ready to share that yet. But the big news is, as <clears throat> as a writer, it's kind of odd. You work on a book, and you get toward the end. And it takes months and months to finish a book, usually about a year. And as you get to the end, the closer you get to the end, it's almost like a tractor pull. You know, with the tractor pull, if you remember those, I think they still do them. But they were more popular when I was younger. But as the weight moves up this ramp, as you go down this dirt uh, track, the weight gets heavier, and the truck usually gets slower. Same thing with a book, and um, so I'd gotten to the, about the end of it, but the doubt was growing, and I was just like, man, is this even any good? And so I've got like the last scene to write, but I was like, man, it's been like, I can barely remember the beginning, and, and you know, I have this little rough outline that I write as I go along. I'm actually what they call a, uh, a pantser, which means you write by the seat of your pants. I don't do an outline on the front, but I was like, I got to... I don't even know if this is any good. I'm just going to start back at the beginning, just re-edit it, see if it's any good. And, oh my goodness, I finally caught up to the end. And um, over a couple weeks, making a few edits as I go. And, wow, it's good. So, I am so freaking excited because the doubts had grown in my mind. And I was worried about it. But, uh, anyway, that'll probably be out in a month or two. Uh, I just need to finish writing that last section. I've already got an editor uh, who's agreed to help me with it. Um, she's helped with a prior book. And so, um, yeah, super excited about that. I'll keep you posted. If you haven't gotten into the Nick Woods series, he's a uh, Marine Corps scout sniper who does some uh, secret mission for the CIA back in the 80s, operating against the Soviets in Afghanistan. If you remember back then, we... Uh, armed the Mujahideen to help fight off the Soviet invasion as part of the Cold War. And in my crazy mind, I had a what if, like what if we had sent in a Marine Corps sniper and his spotter, or maybe a few snipers, but at least one character I would focus on, and who had operated against the Russian special forces, which are called Spetsnaz. And what if they did these missions and the CIA decided to sell them out as a way to discover a mole and then what if that sniper lived and so it kind of goes from there um if you haven't started the series and then how nick kind of gets swept up in the government work again i think it's pretty good a lot of people say it's good and so anyway it's about to finish the fifth book if you want to start it the first book is called sold out it's uh it's pretty good that's the one that, uh, way back in the day, I think the book was launched in 2012. That book sold so well when it first took off that uh, it allowed me to be a full-time author almost on its own for six months. So it's still been selling well ever since. 
but uh, I'm excited to soon launch book five for that, which I said I will tell the title probably in a month or so before I release it, but I want to make sure I'm comfortable with the title. But okay, enough about me. Thanks for letting me uh, share some of that. With all of that out of the way, we're going to get straight into the news, which as I said earlier, pretty big news actually. As you know, Ukraine has been wanting to get M1A1 tanks from the United States. We have been hesitant to provide them. One, because they're frontline tanks, they're the best we have, and, you know, we have been hesitant to share some of our frontline stuff because, A, we need it, we don't just have it sitting around. But also, a lot of generals have talked about that the M1A1 may not be the perfect match very large, very wide, very heavy, much larger than the tanks that the Russians use and that the Ukrainians are currently using. It also uses a different type of fuel. So there's all kinds of issues with sending M1A1 tanks. So despite everyone wanting it to happen, and despite a lot of pressure from people to send them there, the Biden administration has been hesitant. And I really haven't beat up the Biden administration about it because I've listened to enough generals who have said, guys, I don't know if sending M1s is the right move. Uh, Most of the roads can't even support them. It's a different type of fuel source. And you kind of start reading into it and you're like, yeah, it's kind of a pain. What no one had ever suggested, and I'm not sure where it came from, I assume somewhere, somewhere in the Pentagon, is a great alternative. That alternative is the Bradley Fighting Vehicle. So... What's the Bradley Fighting Vehicle? And I should say first, this news first broke, from what I can tell, by Jennifer Jacobs with Bloomberg. And uh, she worked on that story with Alberto Nardelli. So the news broke this weekend that it could be happening. Since then, I have researched it some more. And literally, there was even an article on Tuesday where Biden literally said himself that yes he's considering it so it looks like this is absolutely going to happen the momentum is well underway so this is probably going to happen huge congrats to jennifer and alberto for breaking that story big news and everyone's pretty happy that's wanting to uh you know still a majority of the country opposes the russian invasion and supports arming the ukrainians it's about 70 percent so i have seen both conservatives and Folks on the left side, liberals, and definitely lots of moderates happy about this news that we're going to send Bradley fighting vehicles. So why are they happy? I'm glad you asked. First of all, we have lots of Bradleys that are in storage, and the Army's actually been phasing them out a bit. Um, So we have vehicles we can actually send, whereas with M1A1s, it's not as easy. We don't have as many of those sitting around. But just as importantly, maybe more importantly, the Bradley could be almost as good as the M1A1, and let me explain. For those who don't know, the Bradley is just a medium armored combat vehicle. It can be used as a troop carrier usually. It's got tracks, just like a tank, but it's lighter, and it's way more agile than a tank. And it can carry about 10 people, or it can be configured to carry additional ammunition, communications, and wanted to share one analyst, Rob Lee, I've got this in the source notes. He says, I actually think the upgrade of Bradley's over BMP-1s, which that's the Russian version of the troop carrier, 
might be greater than Abrams over existing Ukrainian tanks. And what he's saying by that is that the Bradleys are way, way, way better than the the BMP-1s that the Russians are using, and that the the gulf between what the Bradleys are and what the Russian infantry vehicles are is probably even wider than what the Abrams is over the current Ukrainian tanks being used. General Mark Hartling, I quote him often, he actually shared on Twitter that he's biased as it was his vehicle during Desert Storm, but that he would agree for a lot of reasons, that the chain gun, the the tow missiles, the speed, there's easier maintenance, there's a smaller crew, better mileage, and there's more vehicles available, and that he thinks this is absolutely the way to go. And I wanted to share just a few more things about it, just real quick. This comes from a thread on Twitter, which was actually written by a gentleman who goes by David D. He didn't put his last name, and I respect his privacy. But he actually is almost like an expert on the Bradley because he's actually used them and been in them. So this is what David says about the Bradley. Now, as I've said in previous episodes, I was an infantry guy. I haven't even ridden in the back of the Bradley because it's an Army vehicle. The Marine Corps uses something called an LAV, which I've never ridden in that either. I have ridden in Amtrak's, but... Here's what David said about the Bradley. First, he thinks the Bradley would probably be, the version sent would be M2A2 ODS. And he says that's a Bradley that's been upgraded at least three times since the last time it faced the Russians, which was back in the 90s. In the 90s, U.S. equipment, obviously during Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, went up against top-line Soviet equipment and... We It was obviously a one-sided fight. Here's what he says about the M2A2 ODS. He says the armor is now thicker. The fire control is better, which means you know the ability to uh, keep the sights and the barrel locked on a target as the tank is moving up and down, maneuvering. Uh, he says the gun is better. It's a 25 millimeter. He said the toes are improved. Now, the toes are those long-range missiles that Bradleys carry. Now, the Ukrainians have been using tow missiles, but they're heavy. They're huge. You have to vehicle mount them in most instances. Um, so, uh, back to the point, though. He said the uh, sights on the Bradley are better. They're all improved. And he reminds us that what can we say about the Russian vehicles out there? Well, there are fewer of them, and that's about all, because most Russian vehicles have not been updated. He explains that during the Gulf War, the M242 Bradley, which is the one that he thinks will be sent, was absolutely just incredible vehicle, that the armor-piercing ammo is devastating to the Soviet-era cast tanks, so their armor isn't as good as ours. Uh, he said that in his words, trust me, we were shocked too, the Bradley crews, that um, enemy infantry would try to hide behind the wrecks of tanks during the fighting, and that it never worked. That a long burst of the 25 millimeter would literally go through the tank and would get them. He says the thermal sights on the Bradley are great and can be used in reconnaissance mode, and that the 25 millimeter can and has been used in the anti-sniper mode. So obviously, as these fighting has almost become trench warfare. There have been more and more snipers, and snipers are hard to deal with. Thermal, for those who don't know, you can be perfectly camouflaged. 
in a ghillie suit, hidden behind brush, bushes, etc. A thermal sight detects heat, so even in daylight, it can see the sniper. And most sniper rifles have a range of about 1,000 yards, 1,200, maybe a little bit more if it's a more advanced weapon. A 25mm cannon on a Bradley is way further than that. So a sniper could be out there with a rifle, thinking he's camouflaged. The Bradley can see him. Even if the sniper tries to engage a tank, a rifle against a tank is not a fair fight. He basically can do nothing to it. Um, And so he's going to get absolutely um, hammered by a 25mm gun that shoots a very big bullet. Okay, back to what David was saying. He said the Bradleys are scary fast. He says, I can say that on a hill I have hit over 60 mile per hour going down it. Um, He goes into the tow missiles. He said they work and nothing can survive a hit from it. And out of 15 he's fired, only one missed due to a malfunction. So this guy has fired 14 of 15 rounds, only one missed due to a malfunction. And I wanted to say just a bit about the tow missile. The tow missile has a range of 4,500 meters, which is three miles. So a tow missile can fire and hit a target three miles away. Now, our very best tank, an M1, has a range of 3,000 meters or 1.86 miles. So a Bradley vehicle from three miles away could literally destroy an M1A1 before the M1A1 could get within range and engage it with its main uh, cannon. Now that's why a lot of people say tanks eventually may end up being obsolete because these missiles are they're just incredible. Their range, they can be controlled and tanks haven't come up with enough countermeasures to stop like a tow missile from being um, accurately guided in by a tow gunner. Now, the Russians have a T-80 tank. They have a lot of T-72s. Those are going to have about the same firing range as the M1A1, which is about 3,000 meters, 1.86 miles. So again, a Bradley vehicle, once the Ukrainians get them, can be three miles away. They can see the Russian tank. They can engage it. There's literally nothing the Russians could do. The best they could try to do is call in artillery, and that's where the speed of the Bradley comes in. They shoot and scoot. You go up the hill take a shot um, and the Russians just do not have the fire control ability to call in artillery and hope it arrives in time to try to stop the Bradley from hitting them while the tow is in flight Um, so and a lot of the Russian tanks are actually T-62s which are even older and just as a reminder those were introduced in 1961 and they haven't been upgraded much so the superiority of the Bradley over everything that the Russians could possibly throw at it is it's not even going to be a fair fight. Um, he, he mentions just a couple other things, and we'll get into the weeds just a tad longer, and then we'll move on. But I know you guys, the people who listen to the show, want this kind of stuff, so I'm going to give it. Uh, David says that some would say that it's, quote, too complicated for the Ukrainians. He says that's BS. If 18-year-old U.S. kids can keep it running... So can combat-hardened, smart Ukrainian mechanics. He says that everything is plug-and-play, and it comes with a computer. It'll tell you what's broken, so it sounds like it's just like a car. He says normally if you have an issue with the hull, 
He explains what it is. You can change it out. If it's the turret, you can change that out. He's like, both are easy to change. Both are quick. The computer is easy to change out. Um, if the motor or the sock goes out, again, easy to pull and swap, as he says. And then he puts a photo in of showing how much additional armor has been added to the Bradley since the 90s. And, I mean, the amount of armor on this thing is just incredible. It's probably worth going to the Substack source notes just to see the additional armor that the Bradley has these days. And then, as a joke he puts, here are the Russian upgrades to the BMP-1s in the last 30 years. He shows it, and you'll see there are no upgrades because the Russians have not upgraded their tanks. So, we don't know yet how many will be sent, but, um, you know... So even small numbers, I think they're going to be a force multiplier. Those thermoscopes, the range of their weapons, the speed, and um, yeah, I think it's a big deal. So I'll keep you posted as we hear what kind of numbers we're talking about, but we apparently have quite a few of them in storage. They're easier to ship and fly versus an M1A1, which weighs way more. So I think this could happen fairly quickly. Let's move from that news to the news that they probably don't want to think about in Russia right now. But hundreds of Russians died in what was probably one of the most successful deep strikes of Ukraine to date. So what happened? This also happened this past weekend. Washington Post wrote about it. It was all over Twitter. The Economist wrote about it. So I'll give you just a quick summary. And then because I wanted to get in the weeds, I dug into it just a bit more. But... uh, Ukraine said at least 400 soldiers were killed in the strike. It's a uh, They hit a city called Makivka. It's a city in eastern Ukraine that's under Russian occupation. Uh, at least 300 soldiers injured. And, of course, Russia downplayed all that. But even they said their death toll was 63. The crazy thing about this is that um, lots of people there in Moscow, pro-Kremlin war bloggers, even telegram channels that a lot of people in the West watch, all of them acknowledge the attack and acknowledge how deadly it was. But the crazy thing was, is there's this ultra-nationalist figure um, named Igor Gherkin, and he's regularly criticized some of the Russian military decisions. Um, And according to him, he gave a few more details about it, but he said the building was a is a former school but it was almost completely destroyed there was ammunition stored in the building which is what compounded the damage uh, most people believe four high mars rockets hit it those are those multiple launch rocket systems mlrs that we've been talking about a lot they they have just incredible range and a couple crazy things about this first there shouldn't have been this many soldiers stacked in a school building that's like one of the first things they teach in the military is something called dispersion, which is you spread people out so that a single you know, incoming artillery round or missile or whatever doesn't kill too many people. But they put all of these recent conscripts in it. And so that was bad enough. But then it gets worse because they store all of this ammunition there. That's even worse. And then as if all that isn't bad enough... Russian state media is saying that recruits had been using their cell phones, which most people believe is what revealed the location to the Ukrainians. So, just like that, the Ukrainians figured out the site, 
and they launched at least four missiles, which set off. I mean, I honestly don't think the Ukrainians expected that kind of damage, but they didn't expect probably for there to be ammunition there. But the interesting thing is The Economist, when it wrote about it, said that uh, this gentleman I mentioned, Igor Gherkin, he's a former intelligence officer, um, he said he warned Russian generals about the likelihood of Hamar's strike on the barracks. Hamar's again are the multiple launch rocket systems. So he literally warned them and they didn't listen. So, I mean, that is just mind-boggling to me that the Russians were warned that they could be struck there, that they were within range, that people were using their cell phones, the generals did nothing, and a lot of people were taken out and off the battlefield by that strike. So, that's great news for Ukraine. That's not great news if you're the parent of one of those Russian soldiers. Just a quick reminder, if you love what you're listening to, please sign up for email notifications. It's free, unless you choose to subscribe and support what I'm doing, but you can sign up for free at my website, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. From there, you can subscribe to the show by email, and that'll make sure you never miss any future episodes. Again, that's free. I will also say that people are are always asking me on social media how to best support my dreams, including getting out future books in some series that they love sooner than what I'm currently doing. Believe me, the best way to support me or this show is by signing up for a paid subscription at my Substack page. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. Or you can sign up to support at Patreon. Again, that's Patreon. Or you can also find me on Venmo at Author Stan R. Mitchell. Again, that's Author Stan R. Mitchell. And I have links to both of those in the source notes or on my Substack page, which again is stanrmitchell.substack.com. Either of those options, if you're wanting to pay, are $5 per month. And you can cancel those at any time. The paid subscriptions provide a recurring monthly revenue, and that $5 a month is the fastest way that I'll be able to return to becoming a full-time author again, which means I'll have more time to write fiction, it'll have, I'll have more time to cover the news even more in-depth, and I'll be able to work even harder to try to unite the country and motivate others. And these are all things that I feel drawn to do, like strongly drawn to do, so... Of course, you can also tell people about the podcast, and there's even the option to give a gift subscription to a friend. You guys can also clearly tell people about my books, which many of you are already doing, and I appreciate each and every one of you doing that. But I do want to be very clear here. You don't have to do any of these things. I truly feel called to do this, and I've already had tremendous support from people who've signed up to chip in a few bucks each month. You guys know who you are. I really do appreciate you. So trust me, you can sign up. Come and go as you like. If you want to subscribe for a couple of three months, that's great. You can do that. As long as I'm making enough to cover the time I put into doing this show, then I'm not going anywhere. I love highlighting the sacrifices of our military. I love trying to unify the country. I love throwing cold water on these over-the-top exaggerations by extremist politicians and broadcasters. And honestly, I love knowing that I'm helping motivate and reach out to people who just need a little extra encouragement each week. So... Thanks so much for your support, and with all of that out of the way, let's get back to the show. Alright, so let's move to the latest 
message that Russia is putting out as it's trying to continue to spin the facts of the war and then we'll briefly remind people of what the truth is. Just recently, December 31st, Russia on its main Twitter page put these three items out. That President Putin says the West lied to us about peace while preparing for aggression. And then he says that today the West cynically uses Ukraine and its people as a means to weaken and divide Russia. And he says, we have never allowed anyone to do this, and we will not allow it now. So that is the message, is that the West lied about peace while preparing for aggression, and that we are using Ukraine as a means to weaken and divide Russia. Tom Nichols, who I've obviously quoted many times in the past, uh, made a great point as a reply to this, and he said that Putin made his own nation into a pariah state after impoverishing his people for no better reasons other than greed, ego, and stupidity, and now he's griping at the rest of the world for his failures. And uh, Tom goes on to say, Russia had every chance to recover and rejoin the world, and he blew it. There you go. That is probably the best summarized reply that one could have, uh, and it's the absolute truth. As a reminder, everyone remembers the red reset button that people made fun of Hillary Clinton and Obama for literally taking one of those uh, staples, easy buttons almost, to Russia to reset relations So Obama tried it. After Obama, Trump did. Obviously, Trump was trying to build a hotel in Russia. He says he's a friend of Putin, likes Putin, all those things he said. Again, that wasn't good enough. If we look at the history of it, Russia invaded Ukraine twice in 2014. It obviously took over the Crimean Peninsula. It also helped encourage and instigate violence in the eastern part of Donbass, and then eventually, as riots and demonstrations took part, Russia sent in its little green men, which, of course, later it came out was clearly Russian military folks, and started a war there in 2014. And then you fast forward to 2022, February, Russia launches a massive invasion No one in the West wanted this. No one wanted this war. Everyone tried to warn him not to do it. He could still end it today by removing his troops. So the West has wanted Russia to join the world order. It has wanted to buy fuel at low prices in Europe and elsewhere. And so Putin can try to spin this any way he wants. But it's important that we remember that the West has tried to allow Putin to rejoin the world numerous times. And numerous times, Putin has called the West weak, and he thinks we're weak. He thinks he's smarter than all of us, and he's learning a painful lesson, and he's not sure how to extract himself yet. But I'm not going to allow him to say things that are blatantly not true. And I will continue to sound like a broken record and remind 
the listeners that he has invaded Ukraine three times. And we're not even adding in all the other countries, such as Georgia, such as Chechnya, and the list goes on. So Putin has done everything in his power to irritate and annoy the West and committed unbelievable atrocities in Ukraine. They don't even try to hide them anymore, but I think all the regular listeners know these things, so there's no need to beat a dead horse on that. Let's just move to the next topic. I wanted to share, in case you missed it, and probably a lot of you did, 60 Minutes did a report the, I believe it was Sunday, yeah, it was Sunday, January 1st, about Radio Free Europe, which I know all of us have kind of heard about, but it's easy to, I guess, kind of have this vague idea or notion about it, but have forgotten what it actually does or means. And you can, I'll put the uh, link to it in the source notes. You can find this on the web. The entire interview is 60 minutes, and they even do a tour of the one of the production places where this is put out, but the Radio Free Europe, it started way back many decades ago and was part of the Cold War as a way to put out correct and accurate information in countries where there's nothing but disinformation. And so currently we're putting out through government funding, the U.S. does fund this, messages to 40 million people, 23 countries, but what matters most as far as why I'm talking about it right now is that 11 million Russians are actually seeking out information from Radio Free Europe. And so even though Vladimir Putin is putting out lots of disinformation and lies, you know, 11 million is a pretty good number. And most of these uh, channels have to be sought out. They do some radio, they do some video broadcasts. It's obviously put out in the host country's language. Obviously, the stuff is produced outside the country since places like Russia don't allow free media. But Russians are tuning in to watch this. And it's currently at about 11 million Russians are hearing the truth about what's happening in Ukraine. Now, Radio Free Europe gets U.S. government funding, but there's a wall between. There's no government influence. So these are journalists who are just doing their job and putting out the truth. So I'm only bringing this up because I found that interesting that 11 million are getting the truth on a daily basis about what's happening in Ukraine. And that seems to me to be a pretty good number. Just to put that number in perspective some, the total population of Russia is 143 million. So you've got 11 million hearing it. But in the past year, there have been a total of 900,000 Russians flee the country. So that's another million people who are getting Western media in the truth and are probably reaching out through Telegram and other encrypted apps to their family and saying, hey, what's happening in Ukraine is horrible. It's a travesty. We're getting absolutely mauled down there by Ukrainian troops. Our conscripts are barely clothed. They have old weapons. They aren't led well. They are threatened with being shot if they do not advance, etc., etc. So all of this could be slowly but surely beginning to build 
some growing pressure against Putin. And so that's why I wanted to make sure I brought this up since I figure there's probably not a lot of people who realize how many people are hearing the truth in Russia. Also, if you are like me and want to know more about Radio Free Europe, I put the link in the source notes to their frequently asked questions. You can learn everything about the funding, to the past history of the organization, to how many journalists have been detained, threatened, and or killed. All of that stuff is in their frequently asked questions and is worth the read. It's about a page, page and a half. If you go there, you might might want to scan through it. I thought it was pretty interesting because that is partly how our tax dollars are at work. And it does explain in there why countering disinformation is important and that this is an important investment across the world and how it helps stabilize the world from dictators and other oligarchs and authoritarians who are spreading lies. So good stuff. Definitely worth a couple minutes of your time. And with that, let's move to the next topic. I want to wrap up our coverage of Ukraine by visiting some recently discovered torture rooms that were found in the city of Kherson. Obviously, the listeners know who've been listening for a while, or if you've been keeping up with the news or the war in Ukraine, you know we, or I should say Ukraine, with some assistance from the United States and material support, liberated Kherson a couple of months ago, and they're still getting their arms around getting power restored and trying to make that a functional city again. But since then, they have discovered a torture room. I've got a video of it in the source notes, and uh, it's a pretty dark and pretty uh, not very great thing to see. It looks like the bottom of probably a house or a small um, industrial building, and I don't want to get too much into the depths of it, and I like to try to keep things as light as possible, but I also want to highlight what the Russians are doing, and just as briefly as possible, I'll try to keep it to like a minute or so, there's no light in these rooms, they're basically just regular rooms that were reinforced with bars put across the doors, uh, or a large latching system, um, People were put in there with no light, there's no windows, there's makeshift toilets. Uh, One was kept there for two months. Um, The folks in there, they were tortured, shocked, uh, electrically. They generally, there were three categories of people that were tortured. There were service members and families of service members who were serving Ukraine. There were local business people who were tortured so that they would give up uh, business assets, sign over their business, etc., Uh, make sure that they're supporting the Russian cause. And then there were uh, local Ukrainians who had been found with pro-Ukrainian flags and other memorabilia. So not a pretty picture. If you want to see what it looked like, you can go look at it. And um, I'm just glad all of this is being documented for what the Russians are doing because it's horrible. It's definitely horrible. And I hope that um, justice eventually comes to those who have done this. Now let's move to a much lighter topic. We've been talking about the friction between China and Taiwan for months and months now. And I wanted to just briefly highlight a very generous offer that Taiwan made as China deals with the growing death toll from COVID that we've talked about several weeks ago. The president of Taiwan said the island would be willing to provide assistance to China to deal with its COVID surge. 
And I thought that was really interesting because if you read the article in CNN, China is not only starting to deal with some of the deaths, which pretty much every media organization is now predicting at about a million, which, you know, I quoted The Economist as saying 800,000 to potentially over a million a few weeks ago, and it looks like their predictions are going to be pretty much dead on. But China is, according to the CNN article, dealing with pharmacy shelves that are empty of cold and fever medicines. They've got Their hospitals are scrambling to cope. If you remember, we talked about how China does not have the infrastructure in place as far as hospitals and care facilities that places like the West and the United States had. So they really do think their death toll will be pretty horrific before this is done. But it was really an impressive... There weren't details on what Taiwan might offer as far as medical care, and I kind of doubt China will accept it because... Um, China's president, Xi, does not want to appear weak, but it just kind of reminded me of the quote from Martin Luther King that uh, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that, and hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. And so I know China really um, cracks down on media, and I'm not sure how much reach the message from Taiwan will have, especially if they were to bring some... um, patients, so to speak, into Taiwan for treatment, but I do know that love and light can often win if you just remain optimistic and patient, and so, to me anyway, a remarkable and generous offer from Taiwan to what is a very large and threatening neighbor who literally just a few weeks ago was practicing an embargo around the island, as well as as we've talked about, numerous incursions by Chinese aircraft into almost the airspace, at least the neutral territory of Taiwan. So, impressive generosity from the the president of Taiwan, and I I hope at least some of the folks in China hear about it as they try to get through what's going to be a challenging winter for them. Alright, so we have covered a lot of news. Let's cover some really cool tech news that I'm betting you did not see. So, it was announced since last week that DARPA, which is how most people know the term, which stands for the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which is a agency that has done most of the significant research that ends up being in the military and then often later in civilian world top applications, has awarded a contract to uh, Northrop Grumman, General Atomics, and Lockheed Martin, those are some big companies you've probably heard of, to develop an air-launched unmanned air vehicle that can employ multiple air-to-air weapons. So why is this huge and, in my opinion, almost revolutionary? From the press release, the objective is to develop a novel UAV that can significantly extend engagement ranges, increase mission effectiveness, and reduce the risk to manned aircraft. Current air superiority concepts rely on advanced manned fighter aircraft to provide a penetrating counter-air capability to effectively deliver weapons. 
It is envisioned that Longshot, and that's the name of this program, it is envisioned that Longshot will increase the survivability of manned platforms by allowing them to be at standoff ranges far away from enemy threats while an air-launched Longshot UAV efficiently closes the gap to take more effective missile shots. So if you look at this thing, it looks like basically a large rocket. And so clearly you would have a Western aircraft of some type carry this very large, almost like mini rocket, which has wings that extend almost like a small plane. The Western aircraft or American aircraft would launch this thing. Would So the American aircraft would fly near the border, launch this thing from a safe distance. It would fly, penetrate through the air defenses of the enemy country, and then actually engage their fighters with what appears to be something that looks a lot faster than any normal jet and would carry air-to-air weapons. And if you're the enemy fighter who's trying to deal with this thing, oh, by the way, there's no... I mean, even if you shoot it down, you haven't really done much because there might be more coming. And like I said, it looks like the type of vehicle... If you just look at it, it looks like something that will be much faster. It looks like a rocket itself, basically. So I'm not real sure how you would shoot it down very effectively in the first place. But interesting project, and I would say it will go a ways, maybe quite a ways, toward making manned aircraft increasingly obsolete, which, of course, the most recent Top Gun movie kind of talked a bit about that topic a bit or explored it and um, clearly minimizing the loss of life is huge but this seems to be to me something that will provide a huge edge to the United States and NATO countries as it's fully developed and as you know I like to cover the future of weapons and technology and how it will apply and change the face of warfare And this is one of those that it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see how this one will definitely change the face of warfare. In the source notes, I have the original news release. If you want to read a little more about it, of course, most of it's secret, and they don't talk about the speed of the weapon or any of that stuff. But they do have kind of a draft image of a, you know, speculative type look to the weapon. So it's kind of cool to see. It shows it clearly launching air-to-air missiles, two of them, at least in the in the photo of the draft image. So it's probably worth going and taking a look if you want to go to the source notes, see what it looks like, and um, it'll, it'll probably blow your mind. So definitely wanted to share that. Okay, guys, so we will move to the motivation and wisdom part. Wanted to say just real quick, just a short little intro, which I'll probably repeat every week because sometimes it helps to get things to sink in by hearing them repeated. And I know some people think that motivational quotes are crap, they don't work, and I frankly completely disagree. And one of the things I've always wanted to be was an encourager. And so I want to encourage you as much as I can, obviously. But for those who say that motivational quotes don't work, you know, I went to a rough school and Going to that school, not everyone graduated, not everyone made it out, and certainly not all of them, everyone made it through college or or to where they probably wanted to get in life, because it's hard to be around people that 
don't believe that suck the energy out of you or that are just beaten down by life or poverty or just difficult circumstances, um, whether it's a single parent, etc. But for me, at least, having books that I read, having dreams, having heroes that I looked up to, whether it was sports figures or past presidents or past military leaders, all of those things helped me. And I know that you guys know this, that if you go to a sales conference or something for like a couple of days, or just some type of leadership event, or just some type of really on-fire type event, and you're around positive people, you are just like, show me the wall, I'll run through it. You're just fired up. But then if you go home, and there's some family members or friends who don't believe in you, and they're like, oh, that won't work, or you can't do that, it just immediately sucks the life out of you. So I know that, you know, people say motivation doesn't last, but I think that motivation is something that absolutely can help you get to where you want to go. And, you know, I believe all of us can reach our dreams. And I definitely want to do my part to help you get there. So that's why I put these in every week. It's my hope that they really help you. You know, people say motivation doesn't last. Well, neither does bathing. And that's why we recommend it daily. And that's what the great Zig Ziglar said. So that's why I try to put these in every week. So I really hope you get something uh, from them. And with that, let's just get started. As my long-term listeners know, I used to begin the motivation and inspiration wisdom section with some kind of story I had seen that was either motivating or kind of inspiring, and I kind of got out of that habit, mostly because it takes time to find stories like that, and also because sometimes those stories are hard to find, so if I didn't naturally come across one, I usually would put more focus on the news side, so I wouldn't necessarily always have one. But I do have one this week that I thought I would start with, and then we'll get into what we typically do, which is just reading the various uh, bits of motivation and wisdom. This story involves a gentleman named Hansel Emanuel, and he plays basketball at Northwestern State. But what is interesting about this story is Hansel Emanuel plays basketball with one arm. And at first I couldn't hardly believe it, so I had to go do a little research. But I actually put a YouTube clip in the source notes on my Substack, which, again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. But uh, Hansel lost his arm in an accident uh, many years ago and did not want to give up his love of basketball. And as he says in an interview with, I put some source notes from an AP article, he says, nobody is going to stop me, only God. So this gentleman who only has one arm is beyond inspiring. I watched a little interview with him. He scored points. It's unbelievable how he does it with just one arm. But, I mean, talk about not taking no for an answer. And, incredibly, he's got like 3 million followers. He has two endorsement deals already. And so this guy that, I don't even know how he's playing basketball, not only wouldn't give up on his dream and played through high school, you know, tried out for the team after being told he shouldn't, made the team, scored lots of points, actually got into a D1 school, and is actually playing now with one arm. Um, it, uh, it's just an incredible story of, of inspiration. I'm not saying the guy's going to go pro or anything like that. I don't. I think his physical limitations will almost certainly prevent that from happening. Um, but 
it's still just inspiring and he even dunks in one of the video clips during a game so it's just incredibly inspiring story that i want to show so if you get a second go to the source notes and watch this guy shoot a free throw uh and he ends up getting his own rebound and then dunks it in one of the clips and um it's just pretty incredible so I don't know what you want to do in life, but if you want to do something and someone's saying no or it doesn't seem possible, I think uh, Hanson Emmanuel would like to talk to you because he's proof that uh, sometimes you can do the impossible. And this guy is playing basketball, and you know, it occurred to me that, you know, a lot of people who are good enough to even somehow play in D1 schools, the chance to make it to the pros are, you know, statistically speaking, so low. But this guy who would not give up on his dream is going to get what many who make it in college and don't make it to the pros get, which is endorsement deals. And he's, you know, probably going to get a book deal, but he's already got two endorsement deals already impacting the world. And so, I don't know, I just find that very, very inspiring. So, if you get a moment, go to the source notes, take a look at that. Now, we'll just continue. As I say every week... These are just things I found on social media. You can find them in the source notes. They're great folks to subscribe to. Here's the first one. Stay patient. The best things happen unexpectedly. It's a great one. Next one. Wish people well. Their success will not limit yours. I like that one. Wish people well. Their success will not limit yours. Let's go to the next one. This is from Ralph Waldo Emerson, which most of you have probably heard of. Make the most of yourself, for that is all there is of you. Again, it's make the most of yourself, for that is all there is of you. Next one. When one door closes, try another door. The world is full of doors. Eventually, you will find yours. I like that one a lot. Don't be pushed by your problems. Be led by your dreams. It's another good one. Next one. Today is a new day. Stop living in the past. I don't know about you guys, but I'm terrible about living with regrets and guilt sometimes. So, today is a new day. Stop living in the past. Don't be afraid to start over. This time, you're not starting from scratch. You're starting from experience. Is that a great one or what? You know, kind of along this line, I uh, learned this week since the last episode that uh, Henry Ford had actually declared bankruptcy uh, twice. And so, you know, he could have given up and we wouldn't know his name today. But, again, he probably learned some valuable lessons during those bankruptcies. So whatever you're doing, don't be afraid to start over. You're not starting from scratch. You're starting with experience. So let's move to the next one. I have the power to accomplish everything I need to do this year. I like that one. That's probably an affirmation that wouldn't be the worst thing to say every day. Here's the next one. Be so busy improving yourself that you have no time to criticize others. It's a great one, isn't it? Next one. Wake up determined. Go to bed satisfied. It's another good one. This was just something someone shared on the internet. Um, 
Germany Kent was the name of the person. Not sure who that is, and I didn't bother looking it up. But how to win in life. This person listed six steps. I thought they were pretty good. Work hard was number one. Complain less. Listen more. Try, learn, and grow. Don't let people tell you it can't be done. Make no excuses. So that's a pretty good list. Work hard, complain less, listen more, try, learn, and grow. Don't let people tell you it can't be done. Make no excuses. Next one. Be a better you for you. A lot of times we do it for other people, don't we? Just a good reminder. Sometimes it's best to do it for yourself. This is a great one. Your success is accelerated or delayed by your habits. Your success is accelerated or delayed by your habits. I'm not going to lie. Um, woke up today with a bit of a headache, not really feeling it. And um, But I'm in the habit of every morning I edit or write when I first wake up. And um, just out of habit, I was like, maybe I can just edit a page or two. And I just sat down out of habit when normally I probably wouldn't have. And of course, you know what happened. I ended up doing much more than just a page or two. So habits are good. Create good ones. So your success is accelerated or delayed by your habits. Let's do another one. If you don't take a chance, you don't stand a chance. Is that a good one or not? If you don't take a chance, you don't stand a chance. I always like to end with this one. Be the reason someone smiles. Be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. I always think that's a great one to end with. And with that, thanks for joining us this week on The View from the Front. For those who want to know a little bit more about me, here's the short version. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee, and I left home to join the Marine Corps at the age of 17. I was also crazy enough to demand that the Marine Corps put me down for guaranteed infantry. I served four years in the infantry, saw enough danger to decide I no longer had anything else to prove, and I exited military service in 1999. I earned a degree from the University of Tennessee in journalism and spent 10-plus years in the news business. I worked initially as a reporter, but then went on to start a weekly newspaper. What can I say? Anyone crazy enough to start a weekly newspaper at the age of 27 is probably a dreamer and an optimist, and I confess that I'm both. I owned that weekly newspaper for nine years, from 2004 to 2013, but once it was clear that owning a newspaper wasn't the best path to financial security, I went on to become an author. To date, I've written 11 books, and while I still have my sights set on the tallest peaks in the writing world, I'm now here as well, a -a once-a-week podcaster who's still in love with both this country and the news. And I see this podcast as a small way to continue serving our country, doing my best to inform and unite us in a time that we're as divided as we've probably been in a hundred years. Well, I've talked enough about me. I really hope you'll consider at least signing up to be a free subscriber. And if you can, consider at some point becoming a paid subscriber. Again, you can do both of these things at my substack, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. As a reminder, please be kind and try your best to love your fellow Americans. Let's all work together to unite this country. And also, please try to be a better person each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media and how you interact with others with whom you disagree. And if you've got a dream kicking around in the back of your mind, go after it. If you have that friend or family member that you know you should reach out to, who you haven't talked to in a few months, reach out to them. And finally, if you're one of those awesome military folks listening out there, if you need help, please reach out to someone. Call a friend or a family member. 
do it for us all. We've lost too many of the greatest folks that this country has produced to suicide. So I'm asking you to be brave once more and show some vulnerability. Take a deep breath. Breathe. Call a friend or family member, one of your fellow veterans, someone who can help. There's obviously hotline numbers as well that you can call. With that, I appreciate each and every one of you, every tweet, every share, every email that I get. can't tell you how much those mean to me. Also, if you haven't already put a rating on some of the um, social media places that you listen to us, whether it's Apple Podcasts or some of the others, if you could drop a rating, that'd be great. We're trying to get those up because I've heard if you get them up to 30 or 40, then the algorithms take over. So that'd be a great way to help out. And then finally, let me mention my books because, honestly, the airspace is free. And also, if you're the kind of person who listens to this podcast, they are probably books that would interest you. So I will briefly describe them real quickly. The first series is about a CIA series involving a Marine Scout sniper named Nick Woods. There's four books in that series. I got a fifth one releasing soon. I'm almost done with that, actually. Uh, It's my best-selling series, and not only is it fast-paced and crammed with action, but... Folks say that the uh, main character, Nick Woods, is one of the most real characters they've ever read. He's not some Jason Bourne-like Superman. He's just a hard, tough man who was raised in the old ways. The first book in that series is called Sold Out, and that's obviously because the main character, Nick Woods, gets sold out. I've also got a detective series about a prior Force Recon Marine who becomes a detective. He moves from a big city, which was Memphis, to a small town, and he learns there's a lot more going on there than you'd think. It's got some organized crime in it, loads of action, a couple of cops die before the end of book one, and if you love that as much as I think you will, there's also a book two. Book one is called Takedown, book two is called Gravel Road, and it may have one of the longest, most grueling hand-to-hand fight scenes you've ever read. I get so much feedback from readers who just say that they are on pins and needles at the end of book two on what is happening and what... um, the prior Force Recon Marine goes through. His name is Danny Akov, by the way. And then I've also got book one of a private investigator series done. It's about an army ranger who's a girl's only hope after she gets abducted and the cops have stopped looking. Uh, There's plenty of action in it as well, and it doesn't hurt that the aunt of the girl um, is hot and she takes part in the chase. So uh, that book is called Hell in the Mountains. And then I've got a couple of realistic war novels. One's about World War II. It's called Soldier On!, And I talk about, or I write about the end of World War II, an imaginary situation where the last elements of part of the German army is just trying to survive. They know the war is lost, but they're trapped from, on one side, you know, the advancing American troops, and on the other, uh, Nazi SS units. So really, the book is, it's it's pretty deep, and so it, it digs into the realities of military leadership, and as these warriors are pushed and pulled through just unbelievable physical torment and mental anguish and will they survive with their honor and dignity and i think you know i've been told this that soldier on just truly defines what it means to be a soldier to never give up and then i've also got a realistic war novel about afghanistan it's called hill 406 it's about a couple of marines who couldn't be more different and they get thrown into an unbelievable combat situation, and it's a situation in which they decide to disobey orders and risk everything in order to save some Marines. Had lots of great feedback about how gritty and realistic that one is from veterans who've served there, which is about the highest honor I could possibly get. Um, and then finally, I've got one other book I wanted to mention just real quickly. And then the final book I mentioned is actually it's a part biography, part self-help 
all inspiration type book uh, about Barack Obama, but includes absolutely no politics, no left-right issues. It's literally just a non-political look at Obama's rise. And I try to answer questions that many wonder about American presidents, what sets them apart, what qualities allowed them to reach their goals, where others failed, how can you cultivate those qualities in yourself, and Besides that, I also share some things about him that you may not know, such as, throw out a couple. Did you know that before he ran for the U.S. Senate, he was crushed by a four-term incumbent who beat him by a two-to-one margin? Most people aren't aware of that. He also coached his uh, Sasha's fourth-grade recreational basketball team called the Vipers while president. That was not super well-known. And then also, the craziest thing, as he's known for being a speaker... Did you know that when he started, he actually wasn't even a good speaker? He admits that himself. So I'll talk about several things I've found out about him as I researched him some. And I think it's a great book that'll help inform you and motivate you. Kind of go into how he found his call and how he mastered speaking. How he overcome just so many obstacles, including that huge like two-to-one election defeat that I mentioned above. And it's the first in what I think will be a number of presidential books, assuming they sell well enough. And so... It's the first one will be on him, and the next one will be on a Republican. I've kind of started that one, but I've put it on hold until I try to see what the interest level is on some type of um, series of books such as this. Some folks don't like the political angles, but again, if you can get past the cover and the name, it's not a political angle. It's inspiration. It's self-help type stuff. And so, you know, I think you can learn a lot from presidents and... I could go for on for probably hours, honestly, about how it's crazy some of the people who end up becoming president and the things they do to get there. But again, I won't get into it too much. But that book is called Number 44, The Traits and Characteristics That Carried Barack Obama to the Top. The How he managed to, with his name, with the background, the mixed background, the lack of money, and the ability to beat out the Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton machine and make it to where he was is still just astonishing. I know he isn't liked by everybody, but it's an incredible book, in my humble opinion. So that's called Number 44. You can check that out as well. And I don't think I said this earlier, but you can find all of my books on Amazon. So just go to Amazon and just search for the name Stan R. Mitchell, and you should see a whole list of them. You'll see them all listed, and that's the best place to get them. And that's also why I have to put the R in my name. You'll see there's more than one Stan Mitchell. So way back in the day, I had to do what I never wanted to do, which is put a middle initial in my name, which to me just seems kind of, I don't know, pretentious. But yes, go to Amazon.com, search Stan R. Mitchell, and you will see a list of them. Hey guys, thanks so much. I figure by this point, not a lot of people listen anyway, but for those who are, I will catch you guys next Thursday. Thanks so much, and with that, I am out.